Amen. I love reading the Word. I love praying the Word, singing the Word, and then, of course, having the Word proclaimed. That's what we do on Friday mornings. I'm really excited about continuing this teaching series that we've been in the last few months, Redemption, the Gospel, the Book of Exodus. I love this journey that we've been on, this journey through the Book of Exodus, and, and even though we're removed from the Israelites by over 3,000 years of, of history and of time in very different cultures and two very different settings, the Israelites and us today in Abu Dhabi in the 21st century, very different and yet not so different. Where we see their struggles, we see ourselves having the same struggles. Their victory is indeed our victory. And well, why is that? Well, because, first of all, they were humans, just like we are. And their same God is our exact same God. And what the Israelites experienced with God's grace is the same grace that you and I experience today. And so what God was doing for them, the Israelites, so long ago in redeeming them, it was pointing to our redemption. And so the book of Exodus indeed describes how God liberated his people from their slavery so that they would be free to go and and to know God and to enjoy him, to be able to worship him and to have him live with them to experience this amazing reality of knowing and enjoying the one true God. And what we saw last week in Exodus 19 through 20 as we worked through the book is we saw how God brought his people out of slavery and they reached the foot of Mount Sinai. And God spoke. He revealed his will. He gave them the Ten Commandments. So we saw that last week. But we did learn and we saw in the text that the Ten Commandments were not a test. It wasn't as though God was saying to them, okay, Fulfill these ten rules, and then I'll accept you. No, not at all. He had already accepted them. They already had his mercy. They already had his approval. God already accepted them. They were in a relationship, and these ten commandments were simply defining their relationship and showing them how they could have a right relationship with God and with others. As Jesus summarized himself, he said, you should love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. And so love God and love others is what is being revealed in the Ten Commandments. And so people that are called to obey who have already experienced God's mercy and redemption. So what you see in the following chapters, beginning at the end of chapter 20, is that God is elaborating. The Ten Commandments serve as a summary, and though God is giving them even more specific details, and he shows his people how. How what? Well, he shows them how, specifically, to maintain a healthy relationship with him and with other people. So if you think of it this way, all of the other laws that we'll look at some of them today are showing how specifically they were to apply in everyday life having a good relationship with God and with others. And so today we're we're covering a very large section in Exodus. Exodus 20, 
verse 22, through chapter 31, verse 18. And some of you are thinking, that's 11 chapters. Surely he won't read all of it. No, I won't. There's just no way. It's far too much material. I'd be reading until it's time for us to leave, which is in itself is not a bad thing. But you can do that on your own time. I would encourage you to do so, by the way. It's an amazing text. We're going to read a few highlights and, and give you a feel for what is going on here and then describe the implications of it. Now, heads up. This is a disclaimer for a few of you, especially if you're kind of new to this thing called faith or new to this thing called church, following Jesus. If, if, if you're a rookie, if you're new to this, that's good. I'm glad you're here. But heads up, disclaimer, it's going to be a little bit weird for you. Some things that we're going to look at, you're like, oh, that's in the Bible? Yes, it is in the Bible, and it's revealed by God to display his glory and for our blessing. And so that is what is in here. So let's read a couple of verses to give you what I consider, as I've, I've poured over and read and reread the section this week, the key that I believe unlocks this whole section. It's in Exodus 29, a couple of verses, verses 45 and 46, are at the heart of this entire 11 chapters, this unit in Exodus, and these two verses are the key to it. So Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. And God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Absolutely astounding, powerful two sentences that have so much meaning. God wants to dwell, literally live among his people. So he wants to be their God, not have other idols. God says, you're personal in relationship. Be your personal God. Live, dwell with you. And so what did he do? He saved them from slavery in order to accomplish it. Why? So that they will know that I am the Lord. He says it twice. I am the Lord. I am glorious. I am eternal. I am all wise. I am the beginning and the end. I am your only hope. I am your everything. I am the Lord. He wants them to recognize and respond with worship as they live with him. And specifically, he among them. And so that's why he saved them. He redeemed them. So much in just these couple of verses. Let me give you the main idea for this entire unit of these 11 chapters in Exodus. The main idea that that will help us understand this whole section is that God redeems his people so that he can live among them forever. That is what is governing. That is the point of this text. This is what God is doing. He saves. He liberates from slavery. He is redeeming his people for a purpose so that he can then live among them, with them forever. That is what God is after, which you saw in Eden The Garden of Eden, God living with his people, enjoying each other on the earth. While God is their God, he's with them in the garden. That has been lost because of sin and corrupted. And all of the Bible, this theme of redemption that runs from Genesis to Revelation, is God reclaiming what was lost, going back to the garden. And so what you see in the Garden of Eden, you see in Revelation, 
You see a tree of life in the end in Revelation. You see God restoring what he originally intended, which is I will be their God. They will be my people and I will live among them. God wants to know you and for you to know and enjoy him forever. That's what God is after. And that's what he is doing. And that is what this book is all about from cover to cover. And so God redeems his people so that he can live among them forever. And so this morning's sermon title is Freedom from Slavery. So freedom to approach God and how God accomplishes it. And there are two truths, two points. Now, the sermon won't be any shorter just because there's two points. It'll be the same. But two truths for us to understand here about God dwelling among his people. The first one is what are the requirements for God's dwelling? So first we need to look at the requirements for God's dwelling. So let's begin reading in this text, and let's begin to see what he's revealing for his people on what God requires in order to dwell with his people. Let's read Exodus 20, where we left off last week, verses 22 through 24. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar on earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So God says, you will not make other idols. You will worship me alone, and you're going to sacrifice in order for me to be able to come and dwell with you. He is zealous for them. What we see here is elaboration on the first and second commandment. You will have no other gods before me, and you will not make for yourselves any idols. First two commandments, he gives a little bit more detail on what they're to do and how that's to work. He wants white-hot worshipers of him alone. He doesn't want to have our hearts, to have other idols that are competing with him. He is zealous and he is jealous for you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want to share you with another idol. Let's keep reading. Chapter 21. Let's jump down. Read verses 1 through 4. And then we'll also read verses 12 through 17. A lot of material. We can't cover it all. I want to give you just the highlights. So chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then we'll jump down to verse 12 and go to 17. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, and he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Jump down to verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. Then I will appoint for you a place which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from the altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father and his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Now, I could keep reading, but it's more of the same. 
more chapters of the same type of laws. And this is not what you read every day, is it? Is this your devotionals that you read on the morning? Not most people. Most people are like, well, that's just weird. The Bible has all this weird stuff talking about slavery and, and execution because you talk back to your parents and we think, oh, that's so hard and so archaic and it's not very modern and we're now a sophisticated 21st century world and, and this just doesn't really fit anymore into who we are as, as a modern people. And so we tend to want to ignore it and say this is just weird and archaic and ignore it. Or we're embarrassed of it or we're ashamed and we hope that no one mentions it. We hope that no atheist brings this up because then it's like, oh, I don't know. That's just weird Old Testament stuff. No, this matters. This is revealed in God's word for a reason. So what strikes me as I've read through this several times this week, what strikes me the most, at least in this what we read this morning, is two things. One is slavery how God appears to be really condoning and advocating slavery, and the other one is this capital punishment, this death sentence, for we would seem to think that they're pretty minor sins. These minor infractions lead to execution. And so we think, no, that's just a little bit strange to us. But let's look at this in context and make sense of this as we think about God's requirements for dwelling with his people. Let's talk about slavery for a few minutes first. When you read about slavery in Exodus 21, here's what we usually do. We usually picture in our minds our closest possible point of reference. And for many of us, especially in the West, we think of 17th century white, European, and then later American men that are enslaving black Africans, taking them on ships back to the New World, and brutalizing them, where they're, they're less than human, and they're not compensated. Okay, if, if that's your image of slavery, then absolutely that's evil. Evil. No doubt about it. That is absolutely wrong. And the Bible itself condemns that sort of slavery. And so people that go to the Bible and say, Ah, look, the Bible affirms slavery, don't have a clue of what they're talking about. Because the Bible absolutely condemns slavery like we usually think of it, which is why we just read it in verse 16. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him or end up on possession, you put to death. God is saying, you are not going to go and steal people, kidnap them, and traffic them, and make them slaves. God says, not acceptable, wrong, evil, categorically wrong. The Bible does not affirm slavery the way we usually think of the word slavery because what we think of it is absolutely completely evil and the bible condemns it death penalty for that so when earlier in the chapter god seems to be regulating and and addressing slavery well how do you reconcile these two truths that are in the same text well first of all we have to think of it in its original context not in modern-day context. So it doesn't condone what we're thinking. It's evil. What this is describing is someone that volunteers to work for someone. It was voluntary. It was not forced labor. 
Remember who the Israelites were. They were enslaved against their will in Egypt, and, and they were brutalized, and they were tortured, and they were compensated, and lost all liberties. Well, that's not what God is saying here. This is voluntary service that, by the way, after six years, ends, and the person is freed, no longer serving. And if you read another text, I don't have time this morning, but Deuteronomy 15, verses 13 and 14, same author, Moses, same people, Israelites, in the wilderness still. God gives more on this same topic. And he says, after six years, when your servant voluntarily leaves, service is done, you don't just send him out empty-handed. No, you, you give him flocks. And you set him up with a business, basically. And so this was a mutually edifying arrangement where the, quote, master had a servant that would do work. The servant that would volunteer for it usually was in debt. So most people that would volunteer for slavery were the ones that were in debt. They were very poor, and it was a way to pay it off. And so by working for the master, it would pay off their debt. It was a way to survive. So it was actually a good thing for an impoverished person that otherwise would have no way to make any money. This was a way to be provided for. And after serving voluntarily for six years, then he would get flocks. And he would be able to have his own business and maybe even bless someone else that was poor so that they could then get flocks and have a business six years after that. So this is talking about someone that is serving under someone else. Now, it gets a little bit difficult to understand when it says, well, what if the, the master gives a slave and then has children and the man has to leave and, and now the wife and the kids have to stay with the master well, it was, it was the same essence there. This is a way for the woman to still be cared for because she originally was the master's. And she wouldn't be off on her own if the man was still in debt. And so this was actually a way for God to provide for his people. And so he is caring for the poor. And so when we read the word slave, understand this in this context was voluntary. Secondly, they were being respected, and compensated. And if you keep reading, we don't have time this morning, but we'll talk about it in our home groups this week, is you can see where there are, uh, there are even times where a slave loved his master and didn't want to leave and voluntarily would stay because of their relationship. And so what you're seeing here is not this brutality that we think about. It's what God was regulating so that people that had to serve others would do so with grace and dignity, and compensation. Now, what about this death penalty? You know, that's another one that's kind of hard. If you keep reading, there's more of the same types of laws. And what you're seeing here is God is showing that he is absolutely holy. He's saying, this is my standard. He is communicating to his people that he wants them to be different from the rest of the world, and that he wants his people to live lives of integrity and of purity that reflect him. And so even though our modern ears hear them and think, oh, that's horrible, but this is, this is God's standard for how he wants humans to live. And there are many, many more examples of this. If you keep reading in the text, there's, there's more. He gives laws on what if two guys get into a fight or what if an ox gets out and kills someone and what about lending property or lending and borrowing money or paying restitution for damages and not taking bribes. And the list goes on of examples where, where God is saying, 
okay, I want you to live different. Let me read to you one verse that sums up this whole section of law. Exodus 23, verse 9, to me, is an excellent summary. You shall not oppress a sojourner. Someone who sojourns is a a traveler, okay? You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. So you weren't in your land. You weren't a soldier, and you were traveling. You weren't home. And so you know what it's like to be oppressed by the Egyptians. So he is saying, you now go and be kind to others, even those that aren't Israelites. You be kind to them. So don't be like other people. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the Canaanites, the Hittites. Don't be like them. They oppress one another. They're evil to one another, but we're not. He says, you, my people, you have me. So God is telling them, you have me. You've been redeemed. Go act like it. Go live it out. It's kind of like a father. Picture a father with an 18-year-old son. All right, He's finished high school. He's going off to university going back to the home country to go to school, to further education. And, and the father sits with his now young man, and he tells him, son, when you go off to university, I want you to go do good. And the son thinks, oh, my poor dad, bad grammar. No, dad, don't you mean go do well? Go do well in university. That's proper grammar, dad. And the father says, no, I know grammar, son. I'm not saying go do well. I'm saying you go do good. You share my last name. You represent me and our family that all share your same last name. And so however you go and live away at university, you still represent those that share your same last name. And so you go represent us well. You go do good in your life. Not just be successful and do well. Go do good. You see, we share God's name. We represent him. On a small scale, you represent this church. You represent your family. But most of all, you represent Christ. And so we must represent him well and go do good because he is good. The next chapter, we will read it. It's too long, but chapter 24, what you see here is Moses reads all of this law. He reads it out loud. Everyone hears all of these laws, and they all agree, yes, we'll do it. We'll obey all of God's laws. Maybe a little bit impulsive there. We're thinking, okay, maybe you shouldn't have said yes so quickly, but they did. They all agree to do whatever it says, and God then calls Moses and the elders of Israel, and they go up the mountain. So Moses goes with Joshua and, and the leaders, the elders, and they go up to the mountain. And then they share a meal there together in the presence of God, so that they beheld their God, and they share a meal. And then God calls Moses and Joshua to go up a little bit further up the mountain. And then, Mo, and then Joshua stays there, and God calls Moses alone to come to the very top, where he then spends 40 days with him. So you you see that in Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So they already heard God's words, and Moses wrote down all of these 
other laws that are in this text. But now God says, I'm, I'm going to write on these tablets of Ten Commandments and give them to you, hand-delivered. You jump down to verse 18 in this same section. And he says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Next week, we're going to see what happened to the Israelites in those 40 days when they were alone without Moses. But that's for next week. There has to do with dancing and a calf. So we'll, we'll see that next week. So what's happening here is Moses is on the mountain for 40 days, and he, he gets information. So the next six chapters, chapters 25 through 31, are a unit. And what's happening is Moses is on the mountain for 40 days, and it says God is showing him, and God is literally showing him and giving him instructions for the tabernacle and the priesthood. You're thinking, okay, what are you even talking about? I'm already lost. What is this tabernacle thing? What? Follow me. It's in the text. This is important. What you're seeing here is God's revealing what a tabernacle is. And God gives Moses instructions. And he says, I want you to build an enclosure that's made of fine linen held up by posts that are covered in bronze and have silver rings on them. And you, you will use these pillars and you will use linens and create an enclosure, like a box with four, well, more of a rectangle actually, with four walls. And he tells them exactly how to do it and what colors to dye them. And then when you go into this enclosure, you walk into a courtyard. And there was a bronze altar in the middle of this courtyard. And a basin where, people, where the priests could go wash their hands and then offer daily sacrifices on this bronze altar that was outside in the courtyard. And then you would walk past the altar, past the basin, and you would get within this courtyard to the actual tabernacle. Now, what exactly is the tabernacle? It was the tent. And God tells him exactly the dimensions and the materials to use to build this tent. And inside of this tent, known as a tabernacle, were two areas. The first area was called the holy place. And then there was a veil. And behind that was the most holy place. And there were items like a table and like a almond flower looking amazing fully gold lamp stand that had seven lights on it. And then behind this veil in the most holy was only one thing. The Ark of the Covenant. Which what was that? Well, what is Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was a wooden box that was completely covered overlaid with gold. And inside was the Ten Commandments that God would give Moses when he was on the top of Mount Sinai. And so, once a year, the high priest, Aaron, would go into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And only priests could go into the tabernacle. So this was something very important. It was God's dwelling. That's what this was. This was God's presence with his people. And so let's read about 
the priesthood, which God implemented here with Moses, with Aaron, Moses' brother, and then we'll talk about how all of this matters to you and me today. Exodus 29, verses 43 through 46. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. And they shall know that the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then turn the page, chapter 31, verse 18, to complete this whole section. And he, this is God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So what you see in this whole section, chapter 20, verse 22 through 31, 18, these 11 chapters, is God is revealing that he wants to dwell, live with, be with his people. So he sets up this holy tabernacle. Inside of it was all pure gold. Everything in there was just one piece of gold. Absolutely remarkable for its time and in its day. The tabernacle was absolutely astonishing with all the gold. And and the way it was crafted was stunning and very expensive. And everyone donated to it willingly and gladly. And so why did God want gold in the tabernacle? And why, why the priests with all of these rituals to be set apart and to be made holy, to be consecrated, it says, which means to make holy. Why? The tabernacle represented God's presence. God was literally right there with them. And we'll see that as we conclude the series in two weeks, how this ends and how God literally fills the tabernacle and his glory is right there with his people. And what is the requirement that you're seeing with all of this? The requirement is holy perfection. And so God requires holy perfection in order to dwell with his people. And so when you read all of these laws, and there's a lot more, go and read more laws, go to Leviticus, there's plenty more of them. Over 600, according to the rabbi scholars that God revealed right in here in Exodus and primarily in Leviticus. And so what was the purpose? Why all these laws? Let me give you one, most important one. Why the laws? It reveals God's holy character. And so the laws given by God, which to us seem archaic, are not really archaic. They're designed to reveal God's holy character. And so the laws that God revealed show that God is absolutely, perfectly, totally, utterly holy. And that he demands holy perfection from those that he would be in relationship with. That's why he set up the priests. And that's why they had to kill animals. You're like, why all the blood? Oh, so gory and weird and just archaic. All the blood was a reminder. Every day they would see bloodshed. Why? Because God was saying sin 
requires capital punishment. Sin requires execution. The penalty for sin is death. So the priest would kill these animals every day and sacrifice them to God to show that this animal was representing the humans that were sinful, that a price had to be paid. So the blood was a reminder, God is holy and we are not. According to Galatians 3, which we won't get into today, but you can if you'd like to. According to the New Testament, Galatians 3, there's a second purpose of the law. The first one is that why the law? It reveals that God is holy. Second one, it reveals that humans are sinful. And so the law reveals God's holy character, and the law reveals, secondly, human sinfulness. The Israelites could not keep the law any more than you and I can try to keep these laws, and we're just as hopeless trying to keep them. Try. I'm serious. If you try to live the exact letter of this law, you won't get past one day. You can't. It's not possible. As humans, we can't do it. And the Israelites couldn't do it either. None of us can. We're not good enough. We're too selfish and too corrupted. They couldn't do it. It was always about faith that God had to provide the ultimate sacrifice, that all these sacrifices every day in the once-a-year atonement was pointing to the need for the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. This is foreshadowing and pointing to the need for a Redeemer. And Jesus came. God made a way. He sent perfect Jesus, fully God, fully human, kept all the law, and so he kept it for us and died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. This is absolutely just glorious, that God yearns to live with you and with me, with us, so much. But because he's holy, he demands holy people, that he will send his son, who's perfect, continues to be perfect to this day, in order to pay the price. And now his Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says that we are the temple. We are the tabernacle. We are the, the vessels by which God's Spirit lives inside of us. The tabernacle contained the presence of God. Now you are the tabernacle. If you're a believer in Jesus, you literally have God's presence living inside of you, which is why we no longer have a tabernacle of gold that we have on a tent. No more need, because now you are the tabernacle. God's spirit is in you, and we have his presence in us. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go on a hodge to be closer to God. You don't have to go anywhere. You can be as close to Jesus as you possibly want, because his spirit is in you. If you're a believer, all you have to do is draw near to him. You have to do is just pray. Go read his word and draw near to him. You already have his presence. Salvation was never about keeping the law. It was always about faith. Knowing that God would provide someone, and now God did. Israelites are saved by faith, just like we're saved by faith. And we have his holy presence, if we will receive it. By faith. So God's requirements for dwelling with us is absolute holiness, holy perfection. Jesus accomplished it for us. 
So secondly, what are the implications? So first of all, the requirements, holy perfection. What are the implications of God's dwelling with us? How then should we live? I'm being very practical here, all right? Here, here's what I'm asking for us as believers today, is when we read the Old Testament law, when we read Exodus or Leviticus, which of those laws do you have to follow? Because there are people who love Jesus that would say, you have to follow all of the laws. And you can Google this. There are people that say, I lived according to the Bible. And they dress weird and they eat weird things. And there's these very strange people. Ever heard of that? I have. Because they're trying to follow these dietary laws and they're trying to live, quote unquote, according to the Bible. And they just look, quite honestly, ridiculous, if you ask me. And wonder, well, do we have to follow those laws? Are they onto something? Should we be, quote, living like the Bible says by following these Old Testament laws? Are we supposed to? And some of these somewhat obscure Old Testament laws, should we be doing that? The answer is no. You're wondering, well, I'm glad to hear no, but why? Because it's not convenient? No, that's not why I say no. Do I say no? We don't have to live that way because we're in a modern age now, and now we're a 21st century sophisticated people. No, that's not why either. It has nothing to do with modernity or cultural context. It has nothing to do with that. The reasons why I say this with God's word as the foundation, why we do not have to follow these Old Testament laws, is because Jesus fulfilled all of them on our behalf. We don't have to live like the Old Testament Israelites did because Jesus already did. He fulfilled every single requirement. Furthermore, Jesus gave us the example of obedience to the law comes from the heart. The heart of the law. And so Jesus obeyed every single intention of the law. He fulfilled the heart of the law 100%. But sometimes in doing so, he really upset the religious leaders of his day because they were thinking the legalistic way to follow the law based upon human achievement. And Jesus says, no, God sees the heart. And so Jesus kept all the laws according to the heart of the law and according to the intention of the law, and because Jesus fulfilled all of it completely, we don't have to. Now, Jesus wants your heart attitude. That's what he's after, is your heart attitude towards him and toward obedience. It was never about a list of moral requirements. That's not what it was. God has always wanted total obedience that flows from a pure heart. That's what God's been after. Obedience that flows from a pure heart. The heart's what what God's after. He wants your heart. The problem is most of us tend to approach God's law one of two ways. Some of you in this room are legalists. You're Pharisees, and you know it. Now, don't raise your hand. We don't want you doing that, all right? But some of you in this room, you are totally wired to be legalists. You are. I am. I'm wired that way. Okay, I want you to know. That's my natural disposition. That's the way I left myself, the way I think, like a legalist. So what is legalism? 
This is one way that we tend to approach God's law. Legalism is measuring your self-worth by how well you perform, quite simply. Measuring your worth by how you perform. I was talking to my wife just yesterday, just last night, about a little girl. Bless her heart. She does not like school. She likes the color. She likes to dance and play and pretend. She loves it. School? No. So I went up to the classroom after lunch. I said, hey, let's go eat lunch. And Abby, so excited. She's like, hey, Daddy, I took my test this morning. Her spelling test. I'm like, oh, great. How did you do? I did really good. I was like, great. How many did you get right? Five? Well, how many were on there? Nine. I got more right than wrong. Oh, then you got five out of nine. You got a 55. That's failure. You did not do well. Little girl, you need to do better. You can, you need to get at least eight right. If not all nine. Cause you're a Levant. Levants are language people. We speak. And we spell and we write well. We don't care about math in the Levant home. We're about words. That's who we are. And so you have to do better. And Bonnie's like, I was the same way when I was a little kid. I didn't care about the grade. She didn't care. She's not wired like a legalist like I am. And she was like, I was like, I love to get good grades. And she was like, why? I was like, why? Why do I like to get good grades? I don't know because you're supposed to. And because somehow my self-worth was wrapped up in my grades. And if I was getting A's, then there was a good, happy, successful Matthew. When I was getting B's, it was loser Matthew. It was all about this performance. So I did well in school, but I'm telling you, it was performance-driven. It was about my pride, if you get down to the heart of it. And a lot of you are no different. You're legalists. You, you are wired to want to perform and find your self-worth in your performance. You like to keep rules. You're a rule keeper. And you like to keep the commandments. And you want to impress others with how holy you are and how well you follow the law. That's legalism. Trying to earn people's approval and God's approval with how well we do good things. People that lean towards legalism tend to emphasize outward behavior and keeping God's laws. And as long as you look good and the right performance and you're following the law by our human achievable efforts, then we think somehow we're closer to Jesus. As long as I'm praying and doing all the right things, then I feel close to Jesus because I'm doing the right things. It's very easy to do all the right things and have your heart light years away from Jesus because you're doing those right things for your own glory, for your own benefit, for others to see you, and God is not pleased whatsoever. We're doing the right thing, wrong heart. And so some people approach God's law with legalism. Keep God's laws. Keep all of them. Other people aren't legalists. They have a license. They're like, no, I'm not legalist. I have a license. I am free. I'm free from the curse of the law. I don't have to follow the laws because Jesus already fulfilled them for me. Jesus already kept the laws for me. I'm free. I can live however I want. I have this license 
and freedom in Jesus where I don't have to think about the law. God forgives me anyway, and so I can live however I please. License to live freely, to sin freely with no consequences, no accountability. People who lean towards this sometimes are more subtle. You know, this I'm I'm giving you the, the very brash version. People that are in church wouldn't say it like that because then you won't look good. Most of us are legalists anyway if we're not careful because we're in church. We follow the rules. The license people are in bed right now because they're up late last night partying. So, but some of us can very subtly have this desire for license. And it's not, it's not, it's not this brash, in-your-face kind of license. It's a much more sanitized and we, we are giving in to our sin. And, and then we'll go to our accountability partner, oh, I'm struggling with this sin. And it's like, really? Are you actually struggling with it, or are you giving in to it? Because a struggle would require a fight. And you're not even fighting at all. There's no fight. There's no struggle. You're giving in very quickly. First temptation, you're in. First thought, you're in. It's not a struggle. Don't lie. I'm not struggling with it. I'm, I'm enjoying it, maybe. You could say that to your accountability partner. I'm enjoying this sin. But don't say struggle unless you really are fighting against it. Then you can actually call it a struggle. And so we think it's just too hard. This holiness thing, this obedience, this really obeying Jesus, man, that's hard work. And so we think, it's just not possible anyway. I mean, I'm justified. I've already, I've already been declared righteous, and so I'm not even going to put the effort in to actually live a life of purity and practice purity. Because you think you have a license. God forgives you anyway. By the way, both of these extremes, which all of us can gravitate towards either one on any given day, on any given minute, Neither extreme is right or biblical. License and legalism are equally evil and unhelpful and do not lead to abundance in following Jesus. Neither one is biblical. What is the correct and right and true approach to God's law, his commands? Phrase it this way. What are the implications of God dwelling with that's what this is about, isn't it? This is what we spent the first two-thirds of this sermon on. It's talking about the law and all of these things and the tabernacle and God's holiness and dwelling with us and making us holy and Jesus paying the price. This is the whole context here is about God dwelling with us. What is the proper response? What are the implications? Here's the answer for you. Living a gospel-centered life. That's the implication That's a solution to legalism and to license, is living a gospel-centered life. But what does that actually look like? Like, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? What it means to have a gospel-centered life, what it means is that everything that you think, everything that you say, and everything that you do is so radically transformed by the grace of God as seen through the work of Jesus on the cross. So if you work backwards, you have Jesus crucified showing God's holiness 
and showing God's mercy and love for you. And you're so gripped by that, that it has so transformed your heart, that now everything that you do in life, think, speak, do, is radically impacted by what Jesus did on the cross. So the more you focus on Christ and on his glory and what he did on the cross, What's going to happen in you is you're going to have these new passions, new desires will grow. And the desires for holiness and the desires to please Jesus, the desires for purity and integrity and a clear conscience, the desire for Jesus will grow so much that your desire for sin will begin to diminish. It's all about the heart. It's about having our heart, our desires changed. See, your life will naturally begin to reflect the same obedience that Christ had on the cross, the same grace and love and mercy, the more that you focus and delight in Christ. The more you focus on the gospel, what will happen is you will just reflect it, which is obedient. Christ was obedient even to the cross. He showed us grace, so we show grace to others. He showed us mercy. We have mercy with others. God forgave us, so now we forgive others. We begin to reflect the gospel the more that we focus and abide in Jesus. This is all made possible by the Spirit's work in us. We can't manufacture it. The Israelites couldn't save themselves. God provided a Redeemer, and he did. And the Spirit gives us new heart with new desires for obedience. Think of it this way, all right? Let me give you a mental picture. Think of railroad tracks, okay? They go somewhere, right? The answer is yes. And think of a train that's now on those tracks. A train can't go anywhere without the tracks. The tracks are necessary for the train to go on. But the thing is, the tracks themselves are powerless to power the train. The tracks can't make the train go. What the tracks do is that it defines the direction in which the train is going. And so what is the power that is fueling this train? Think of this spiritually. For you to move down in the right direction, the tracks are like God's laws. They tell us which way to go. It reveals God's character and our sinfulness. The tracks show us the way to go, but the gospel is what powers the train. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It is the gospel that animates you and gives you the power that the Spirit uses to push you down the tracks in the right direction that God wants you to go. You won't get anywhere if you don't have the Spirit empowering you. You're going to be stuck on those tracks, and you may know the way to go, but you won't get very far down the road unless there is something powering you to move down the tracks. Spirit of God who works as we focus on Christ and his gospel that he has revealed and accomplished for us. This is the work of God. Laws won't get you very far unless God is empowering you through his spirit. How do you do this? How do you tap into that power to do that? We have to discipline ourselves to practice certain behaviors that will then develop 
a love for those behaviors. So listen to me. We need to discipline ourselves to practice certain behaviors that will then develop a love for those behaviors. And so our daily routines will dictate how well you follow Jesus. Your daily routine will impact that. And so what I'm saying here is that our appetites grow. They do. If you go to one of Abu Dhabi's finest hotels and pay 300 dirhams and have a buffet and you eat like three meals worth at one buffet, ever done that? Don't raise your hand because I know most of us have, right? And you go and you eat it and you're like, oh, I feel gross and I ate so much and I'm in pain. I ate. I won't eat again for days. What happens in three hours? You're in the pantry looking for something to eat. It's like, what, what just happened? You, you just indulged and you ate so much food and now you're hungry again so quickly. The more you feed an appetite, the more it grows. So if you want to eat less, don't go to the buffets. That's just free advice. Appetites grow when you feed them. Starve your appetite for the evil. Feed your appetite for Jesus. And so what happens is you feed your soul from God's word. You feed your soul feasting on the bread of life and drinking from living water. And when you're feeding your soul and you're reading and meditating and you're spending time with Christ, what happens is your, your appetite for that will grow. Your appetite for the evil will diminish. It's all about what you're feeding. So the more time you spend reading and praying, spending time with Jesus, and practicing purity, the more your desires for those things will grow. And by faith, we trust that God is going to do that work in our hearts. God sees your heart. That's the bottom line here. We're called to obey. Not legalism, not license, neither one. Gospel-centeredness. We are called to obey because we love Jesus. We already have his favor. We already have his approval. You don't have to earn his approval. You already have it if you're a believer in Jesus. Out of that relationship, out of love for Jesus, you obey. Little love for Jesus, little obedience. No love for Jesus, no obedience. You will obey that which you love the most. So what do you pursue with the most passion? What are you most passionate about? You'll find yourself obeying and sacrificing for that. The solution really is the gospel. Beginning end is the gospel. Abiding in Jesus as you contemplate on what he did for us on the cross is the only way to fight legalism and the only way to fight license. God yearns to dwell with his people. That's what he wants to do. He has redeemed us so that he can dwell with us forever. Heaven awaits us. What is required? Absolute, holy perfection. Jesus paid it all. What are the implications? Gospel-centered living. Are you trying to obey 
please God on your own? Are you just exhausted this morning? Not because it was a long sermon, but are you just exhausted because you're trying to obey God on your own? There's a solution. His name is Jesus. Will you please pray with me? Father, this morning we approach you with hearts that are full of joy and anticipation of what you have in store for us. We praise you for indeed you are good and you have saved us and loved us and you indeed give us your law for our own good and you give us your spirit to empower us to obey it. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray for anyone in this room that even right now is struggling with this. Maybe they've never even turned to you. They never put their faith in you. I pray that they will do so today, Father, and experience this transformation in their relationship with you. Praise you. We adore you. We need you. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.